The Guardian. Hello? Can you hear me? If you're not sure where we are, let me explain. Since Tuesday's episode, Science Weekly has been floating towards the event horizon of Sagittarius A-star, the supermassive black hole at the centre of the Milky Way. And that black hole is precisely the black hole for which half of the Nobel Prize uh, was awarded this year. It's about 26,000 light years away, so it would take a while to get there. And it's about 4 million times the mass of the sun. That's Jan 11, physicist, author of the book Black Hole Survival Guide, and trip conductor. She's waiting a safe distance away in an orbiting spacecraft. The fascinating thing about black holes is that as an explorer, you can get incredibly close to uh, the center of a black hole. Let's say we're at Sagittarius A star. It does not have jets coming out. It's, it's pretty quiet. You know, there's some activity going on, but, but nothing terribly lethal. So you could try to set up an orbit. The black hole, four million times the mass of the sun, is only about 17 times the width of the sun across. So you can get incredibly close to the center of a black hole and stay outside uh, the event horizon and safely set up an orbit. I would recommend staying in the space station if I were you. If you set up your space station, <laughs> uh, I recommend staying inside. But of course, the scientist is going to be unable to resist the compulsion to go explore. <laughs> I, on the other hand, am about to take the leap into the unknown. Crossing the event horizon, the point at which anything that enters the black hole can't escape, not even light. The event horizon is simply a shadow. It's utterly empty of stuff, and it leaves it behind in the space as a place where you cannot sit still and you cannot escape. You have no choice but to fall inward. See you on the other side, if there is one. So, Janet, we left off as I hit the event horizon. To you, my time has slowed to the point where I appear frozen. And to me, your time has gone at an extraordinary pace, speeding through your whole life and into the future. But now I'm finally going in. I'm not sure if I can send you, or perhaps some distant relative further down the family tree, a WhatsApp or an email to let you know what it's like once I get inside. No, you cannot. And interior to the event horizon, it's not like a normal place. So from the outside, I might have thought, oh, there's a center point in space, like the center of a sphere. And that's where the singularity is. But that's actually not the experience of somebody falling in. The experience of somebody falling in is that everything is forced towards that singularity as though it's in their future as though it's not a point in space, but rather a point in time. In some sense, black holes rotate space into time and time into space. So that for me on the outside, I'm thinking, I'm watching or suspecting that you must be falling towards the singularity in the center of a sphere, but you feel you're approaching the singularity inevitably in your future, along with all the light signals you try to send out, they go forward with you towards that singularity. They can't go behind you back to the event horizon. Whilst I'm falling, give me a sense of my impending doom. 
I've heard stars being eaten by black holes undergo death by spaghettification, which is a fun word, but not a fun demise, I imagine. <laughs> yes. So while you're crossing the event horizon, it's not too bad because the curvature is actually really gradual for such a big black hole. And it's okay for a little while. You start to see all this bright light concentrating down on you. You realize you're inside the event horizon. But at some point, as you approach that singularity in your future, the curvature inside becomes even more extreme than the event horizon. And it is like standing on the basketball eventually, where your two feet are experiencing a different curvature. And that actually draws parts of your body towards the singularity faster than other parts. It also crushes parts of your body towards each other as they're crushed towards this this infinitesimal point, and it has the effect of basically um, flaying you, ripping you to shreds. Your ligaments would tear and break. You become compressed, stretched, spaghettified, and eventually torn into your fundamental bits, meaning your subatomic particles, and even those eventually fall into the singularity, at which point we don't know what happens to them. A truly science fiction-style death and as I fall towards my end, could you explain how black holes come into being and what it tells us about them? So we talked in the beginning about the black hole being the death state of a star, but that's just one particular way to make a black hole. And the supermassive black holes that we're talking about might not have been made as a death state of star. They might have formed in the early universe directly collapsing out of the primordial cloud, or they might be composed of dark matter, or they might have been formed in some as yet unforeseen manner. So black holes aren't just dead stars. That is just one way nature thought of to, to create them. You can imagine making black holes in the very early universe that are teeny, teeny, tiny. And what do you mean by having made a black hole? You mean you made a fundamental gravitational particle that has this event horizon, that has this property of the curvature of space-time. And the glorious thing about thinking about it that way is you realize that in some sense, black holes, unlike any other astrophysical object in the universe, are more like fundamental particles, more like, let's say, an electron. And uh, the way an electron is indistinguishable in its properties from every other electron, there's not an electron that's a little bit heavier or has a little more charge. They're identical. And in that sense, all black holes with a certain mass a certain spin and a certain charge, they're all identical to each other, like they're perfect, flawless, featureless, fundamental particles. And so that's really what we mean when we talk about a black hole in the theoretical sense. We've said that I'm heading towards this singularity, but really, what is this singularity? How should I understand it? And is there really no other side to this black hole past the singularity? Am I not going to fall out the other side somehow? You might. So the singularity technically is a mathematical prediction of Einstein's general theory of relativity. And it means something very bad is happening. It literally means you've fallen out of space-time in the universe. You have ceased to exist. And we don't wrap our heads around that in physics. So singularities are actually saying I've broken causality, I've broken the meaning of existence, I've broken the laws of nature. 
And so most people argue that we'll probably be protected from this in one way or another. It probably means general relativity is not the whole story. The theory that understands quantum particles when you're flayed into your quantum bits will explain to us what really happens after that point. You'll still be gone, you'll still have met this terrible demise, but here's one possibility that theorists have played with. I could sew a whole other universe onto the singularity so that as you're going towards the center of the black hole, instead of meeting a singularity, you meet a big bang and you get blown out into another universe. And maybe with it, all your quanta, all your particles get blown out and find life in a whole new ecosystem where maybe new black holes are formed. Those are sometimes called white holes. If that's conceivable, then inside the black hole from the space station, which might only be 17 times the width of the sun across, is an entire universe as though the black holes are bigger on the inside than they are on the outside. Peering out of the black hole, it seems as if it's eaten up all the surrounding matter. It's sad that your spacecraft has also disintegrated. So what happens now? What's the black hole's eventual fate? The possibility is that that black hole will will live a very long life. You might be long gone, but it will be able to take down more matter after you. And before you die, you will see the light from the galaxy shine behind you so brightly, concentrated so catastrophically at you that it would look like what I call that, that light of the end of the tunnel. But then that black hole could have a very long life. Now, we thought that it would just live forever. But then Stephen Hawking came along and um, made an extraordinary, truly exceptional discovery when thinking about not just space-time, but thinking about quantum mechanics in space-time. And his discovery led to the suggestion that actually that black hole will evolve, will evaporate, and will eventually itself disappear. An evaporating black hole seems paradoxical. If even light can't escape, what exactly is emanating outwards? So what Hawking did was very wily and very sneaky and very deeply clever. It's why he earned so much admiration. His realization, it's very complicated and subtle, but I think that this is one way to think about it. Hawking knew there was something called the Heisenberg Uncertainty Principle in quantum mechanics. Put space-time aside for a second. Just in quantum mechanics. The suggestion by Heisenberg that a particle cannot simultaneously be in a precise location and have a precise motion. It's a very strange result, yet we know it's true quantum mechanically. The more precisely I specify the motion of the particle, the less well uh, I can specify its location. And it's not that my knowledge is poor, it's that the particle actually doesn't have a specific location. If I can't say a particle's precisely at a location, it also means I can't say it's not there. I can't say there's nothing there. So I can't have what physicists refer to in slang as the vacuum. I can't have the empty space, the nothingness of the event horizon. 
if we go back to space-time, because you can't say there's nothing there once you understand that quantum mechanics is one of the paradigms driving the laws of physics. That means that in empty space, there's always a possibility that a particle could be created, but it has to kind of disappear really quickly. To be created, it's often in pairs. So for instance, I can make a positron and an electron, it's, it's antiparticle, but they have to be paired in precisely the right way that they would, when recombined, make empty space again and not mess with that. Recreate the properties of the vacuum, if you like. Now, what Hawking did is he realized, you know, the event horizon being this one-way mirror, it can steal one of those particles. It doesn't matter which one. Leaving the other stuck outside the event horizon. So this particle that just kind of quantum fluctuated in the emptiness of the event horizon suddenly gets separated from its partner. It can no longer go back into the vacuum. It doesn't have the right properties without its partner. And so this particle is free to escape. And that is what we call Hawking radiation. It's half of a pair of particles that fluctuated out of the vacuum. And one way I like to think about this is an analogy that's very visual that some people might appreciate since we're, we're doing this over radio is imagine by a vacuum, in analogy, I mean something like a specific color of paint, like green paint. Then I could imagine a kind of alchemical process that draws out of the green paint a perfect yellow droplet and a perfect blue droplet that when they recombine, make green again. And so they can kind of pop in and out these blue and yellow droplets, and they're still green when they're combined, and all's good, and you still have your original color. But if one of those droplets gets caught behind the event horizon, it has to fall in, leaving the other, the blue one, let's say, the yellow fell in, stuck there. It's no longer green. It simply cannot return from whence it came. And it is free to travel out into the universe. And, and effectively, the black hole has, through a trick, radiated. It could be light or particles. And that's what Hawking meant when he said black holes evaporate because they do so at the expense of the mass of the black hole. It steals energy from the gravitational mass of the black hole, and it, um, it throws it out into the universe as radiation. I do still find an evaporating black hole quite conceptually challenging. Does this have any relationship to the question of where everything that's fallen in, stars, planets, me, has actually gone? What happens to all our information? Is it coming out with the Hawking radiation? When Hawking first starts to describe Hawking radiation, he says the black hole shrinks, the event horizon gets smaller, the black hole loses mass, but none of the particles that fell into the black hole came out. That's still true. And so he, in this kind of inimical way, provoked this terrible crisis because it said that information that went into the black hole is not contained in the radiation that was emitted, and the radiation that was emitted is featureless. It, it doesn't give you any details about what fell in. It has no knowledge of what fell in. It didn't come from inside. And that means that all of that information that went in is lost. And that became a terrible crisis because fundamentally, in all the quantum theories that we've tested as the most well-tested paradigm, really in all of science, information is preserved. You can reorder it, you can, you can lose track of it, but you can't destroy it. 
this was a paradox that had to be resolved. And it became a war where on one side you have the quantum theorists saying information cannot be lost. There must be something wrong with our ideas about general relativity in the event horizon. And you have the relativists on the other side saying, oh no, general relativity in the event horizon is sacred. And information is lost and quantum mechanics is gonna lose this battle. And the battle has been going on and is still going on 50 years later. This idea of Hawking radiation and information loss has actually driven some of the most wild ideas and tremendous discoveries. So in an attempt to, to make them play nice together, quantum and space, um, people have, have begun to suggest really exceptionally bizarre ideas, like there is no interior of the black hole, that the whole story I just gave you is untrue, that when you approach the event horizon, what actually happens is your data gets smeared out over the horizon, never to fall in, that that's when you meet your demise. And that in some sense, all of the information being packed on the surface of the black hole creates a hologram. It creates an illusion that there ever was an interior because a hologram is a, is a two-dimensional object that creates a three-dimensional illusion, but all of the information is on 2D. That has led to some really startling suggestions like, well, does that mean that everything is a hologram because if I try to pack a bunch of a lot of information in a small volume, I'm going to make a black hole. And if all the information on the black hole is trapped on the surface and the idea that it's a volume is an illusion, then doesn't that mean that the whole universe is a hologram? And um, so it's been a pretty wild ride. <laughs> Jana, thank you so much for taking me on this journey to a black hole and blowing my mind and turning me into my fundamental particles. <laughs> thank you so much for coming with me on this trip. I really appreciate it. Thanks again to Jana. Her book, Black Hole Survival Guide, will be available from the 12th of November here in the UK. You can find a link to it on the podcast webpage at theguardian.com. We've also put a link there to science correspondent Nicola Davis's article on the 2020 Nobel Prize for Physics. That's it from us this week. We'll be back next Tuesday. Stay safe and see you then. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.